The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Well, good morning. Add my welcome to Roberts. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. There we go. It's good to be opening God's Word together this morning as we continue in our study in Luke's Gospel. If you are visiting with us this morning last week, we looked at the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow, where Jesus urged those who are his disciples to persist in prayer and not give up while they await the return of Christ and the fullness of his kingdom. And this morning, as you just heard read, we have yet another parable of Jesus that also deals with prayer. This parable tells of two prayers of two different men, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector, and which one God ultimately vindicates in the end. And so my prayer this morning for us is that we will suspend our proclivities to want to jump to the conclusion of this story because we know how it ends, and that we'd actually sit into this story and, and understand and receive the richness and the fullness of what God would want to teach us this morning through his word. And so to that end, let's go before the Lord and let's pray this morning. Father, we come to you yet again as sinners who have been rescued and redeemed. And we ask that you would open our ears now and give us fresh eyes to receive this truth. Holy Spirit, would you penetrate into the places of our heart where there's fear, where there's doubt, where there's pride and other sin? And would you bring conviction? And then would you show us Jesus, the King of glory and the King of grace? Lord, if you would do this, we would return thanks to you. We give you praise for all of this. In Christ's matchless name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was in college, I mountain biked a lot with my friends, and so when my oldest son Asa asked to get into mountain biking several years ago, I thought, sure, this will be great. I'll get back into it, and then we'll go together and have something to do together. And so during COVID, he and I took a road trip to Knoxville uh, to go to some of the circuits of trails that they have up in Knoxville, and uh, so I was excited, and I think a big part of me was thinking, I've got to prove to myself and to my son that I still have it. Even though 20 plus years had passed and a few more pounds had been added. And so to cut to the chase, we get up the first trail and climbing there. And about three minutes in, Ace is gone. I don't see him anymore. And I began to breathe abnormally heavy within just three or four minutes into the trail ride. And again, to make a long story short, after about two hours of trying to keep up with him and walking a bit and having extended breaks, I went back to the car. And Asa found a younger guy that he rode the rest of the afternoon with. (laughs) I tell you that because those trails were way out of my league for the shape that I was in. And the reason I thought that I could hack it and, and keep up with my son was because I wanted to see what I wanted to see about myself instead of really seeing what was true about me. I think that's often true of all of us. We see what we want to see rather than understanding the true reality of who we really are and what things are really like. 
And so Jesus tells us this story this morning so that we see what's really going on, not only in the world around us, but also what's really going on in our own hearts. And so as we investigate these two men's prayers, let us give honest evaluation this morning as to where our heart really is before the Lord. So you see your outline in the back of your bulletin there. We're going to study this parable by looking at first the Pharisees' revealing prayer in verses 9 through 12, and then we'll see the tax collectors revealing plea in verse 13, and then finally, Jesus' surprising verdict in verse 14. So in verse 9, we're told that Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And we don't know exactly who this audience is made up of that Jesus is speaking to, but it's likely, at least if it's not all Pharisees, it consists of some Pharisees in this group. And he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A couple of things here that I want us to note. First, Jesus says, some who trusted in themselves. So he's not lumping all the Pharisees into this group that they're all the same. But then the other thing I want us to note is that before we demean and look down on the Pharisees because of what we've been taught before in our past, I want us to see who they really were. Because the Pharisees were really sincere men. And they were, had solid theology and they had extremely, were extremely zealous for their commitment to God and wanting to obey God's law and the scriptures. And they actually separated themselves from the liberal Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. These were people, the Pharisees, that others looked up to, that revered, that wanted to be like them and live like they did and understand the scriptures in the way that they did. And remember what Jesus even said to his own disciples, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. So in our day, the Pharisees might be akin to an Orthodox Christian, but with far more spiritual discipline. But then notice the posture of this Pharisee, this particular Pharisee, as he begins his prayer. He's standing by himself, we're told. And it's commonly thought that he was probably standing at the front of the temple, near where the animal sacrifices were being made. And he begins his prayer, God, I thank you. It's a pretty good start. He's praising God, right? But then he continues. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. It's like extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector that he sees in the back of the temple. This Pharisee is outwardly addressing God with his prayer, but inwardly he's talking about himself to himself. See, because... He's seen all that he has done. He praises God that he's not like other men. But why is he not like other men? Because he fasts twice a week. Now that's way ahead of the game because in the Old Testament, you only had to fast one day of the year, the day of atonement. Then he also says he tithes on everything that he gets. Again, this Pharisee has done everything right. He's been faithful to God and faithful to his fellow man. He goes to the temple, he prays, he fasts, he tithes. But did you catch how many times the pronoun I is used in those two verses alone? Five times. I fast, I give. Where's his main focus? 
This Pharisee is revealing by his prayer what is truly in his heart. He's in essence handed God a resume and said, here, take all this that I've done for you. His heart is full of self-righteousness and self-reliance. And the fruit that is born from an arrogant heart is comparison with others and contempt for others. And this Pharisee has both of those in spades. At least I'm better than those people. The old comparison game. We all play it, don't we? Sizing ourselves up constantly with our work ethic, with our popularity, our level of education, our accomplishments, our commitment to justice, our church involvement. And we compare that to everybody else and see where we stand. And our comparison with self inevitably spirals into contempt for others who we deem as less than. And as this happens, we can then act as if our ability to see the weaknesses and the sins of others as proof of our righteousness and our superiority over other people. And contempt leads us to view those who don't measure up as not really worth our time or lacking dignity as we see this Pharisee doing here with the tax collector and others. Now there are times that we're more bold to verbalize our contempt of others and we do it through demeaning gossip. Especially in the South, we try to sanitize that, you know, maybe with a, a bless his heart. But it's gossip at its root. But our contempt is not limited just to others, though. We can have contempt for ourselves. I should be a better coworker, or boss, a better friend, a better spouse, a better Christian. And the judgment just continues to spiral and never stops. Because there's always more people to judge ourselves against. And this contempt, it doesn't feel like pride, but it's an obsession focusing on ourselves because there's, we're always trying to position ourselves with one another to see where we stand. But the reality is underneath all of this comparison of others and contempt of others is a longing and a desire to be accepted before God and before one another. But the problem with this Pharisee is his assessment of his goodness is based on his own standard that he believes he's bringing to the table and all of his goodness. And when we try to live by our own standard, we must perform in order to meet that standard or then we must pretend when we don't meet the standard that we have. And this was my zip code for a long time. Constantly performing for teachers, for coaches, for my parents, for friends around me. Everything in life was a test that I had to perform in order to pass. You know how exhausting that is? See, self-righteousness is all about pretending and performing. And there's a reason why self-righteous people are often angry people, brittle people like I was, flat people. Because all of this doing and performing becomes your God and it consumes you. This is why many of us can vacillate between feeling worthless when we fail, but then feeling superior to others when we succeed. Because all of life is about performing and doing to earn. 
This Pharisee believed his worth before God was based on his own obedience and his righteousness that he put forward. And so he came full of his hands of what he's done for God and said, in essence, you must accept me for what I've done for you. But you notice nowhere in his prayer is there a confession of sin. After he mentions God in the first word, that's the last time you hear about him. See, we must evaluate our own thoughts before God and our conversations that we have with God. And see, where do I find, am I trying to find my heart believing that my spiritual and moral resume actually earns me something before God? Let me ask you, are you running on the treadmill of performance this morning? Constantly doing a lot of good, but your motivation is trying to earn before God rather than receiving what he's given freely as a gift by faith. We have to ask the Spirit to bring conviction of where we're being self-reliant and self-righteous to see what drives our comparisons and our contempt of others. Jesus tells us this story so that we're no longer crushed by the tendency to need to perform and to try to pretend. Well, next, look at the tax collector's revealing plea in verse 13. Jesus goes on, he says, But the tax collector, now unlike the Pharisee, who was very well respected in the society, the tax collectors were despised and hated and seen as the lowest of the low. Because the Roman government had turned over collection of taxes to individuals, and so many of these Jewish tax collectors could name their own interest rate. And they would actually extort money from their fellow Jews in order to line their pockets to get rich. So these Jewish tax collectors had turned their backs on their country. They were scammers or slumlords like we might call them today. They weren't even allowed to testify in court because of how much they were distrusted in the society. But did you catch the stark contrast between both the posture and the content of these two men's prayers? Unlike the Pharisee, this tax collector is standing barely inside of the temple. He's not up at the front of the temple like the Pharisee was. He may have just come from the tax collector's booth. We don't know. But his hands are not held high with his head high up to heaven like the Pharisee's was. No, his head is bowed down low in utter shame. He hadn't cleaned himself up. He's still filthy with all of his guilt from what he has done to his fellow Jews and every other sin that he had committed. And unlike the Pharisee who confidently and properly prayed to God, by then giving all of his virtues and even comparing himself to others, this tax collector, he doesn't know how to pray. He begins to beat his breast, mourning and sorrow over his sin before the holy God and begin to announce and confess his sin to God. And he didn't dare compare himself to anyone. Both of these men have singled themselves out, but for completely different reasons. One, because he thinks he's better than everybody. And the other, because he thinks he has no dignity or worth because of what he has done. And then the tax collectors watching the sacrifices being made in the temple as if probably thinking, none of these animals is going to atone for all that I've done. God, would you have mercy on me, he cries out. And in the original Greek, that language is closer to the phrase, God, please atone for me. 
the sinner. Kind of echoing that language of the Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners. Is there something to atone for all that I've done? He knows he's wicked. He knows that he's turned his back on his fellow Jews. And even though he's got money, he knows he's spiritually bankrupt before God. In essence, this tax collector is saying, Lord, you have no reason whatsoever to be merciful to me, but please be merciful to me. His plea reveals both his humility, but also his desperation for grace and mercy that only God can give him. See, real righteousness is not about hiding our sin or pretending like our sin isn't there. Real righteousness is grounded in our union with Christ that frees us to come with our sin, confessing it before the God who hears us and who can forgive. But see, our problem is our heart's default mode is to think that righteousness is about the externals. If I appear important, if I'm successful, if I champion all the right social issues, if I'm moral, or if I set the right goals and achieve those goals, then I'm righteous. But none of that deals with the heart. Jesus tells us this to show us that there's nothing that we can do, no matter how we do it, to satisfy the debt that we owe. Being righteous before God is by what's already been done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, period. See, on paper, externally, there is no comparison between these two men as to who is good and who is righteous. Because the Pharisee prays. He goes to the temple. He's disciplined in his lifestyle and pursuit of God. He lives differently than others. He lives a better life in his community. That man sounds more like me and perhaps you this morning. But the tax collector, he's a thief. He doesn't know how to worship. He doesn't pray. He's unjust to the poor and likely an adulterer. And Jesus offers this surprising verdict in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And at this response, Jesus' audience would have been blown away. There is no way this tax collector went home righteous. The audacity of Jesus claiming that. Kids, to be justified means to be made right or acceptable. Parents think of justifying your checkbook. You go through the register, you see what's on your register, and you try to see if that matches what's in your account. And when those two things match, which I'm told they can, then you know that your checking account is justified. Spiritually speaking, though, justification before God means that the perfect standard that God requires that we cannot attain because of our sin has been met through the work of Jesus. And when we submit our lives unto Jesus by faith, that we're declared righteous in God's sight. It's something that happens outside of the believer. And so as followers of Christ, we are declared righteous only because that righteousness that Jesus earned for us is deposited into our spiritual bank account. 
And it meets the standard of God. See, the Pharisee had all the external qualifications. The tax collector had none of them. Yet he says that this Pharisee went home unjustified and unforgiven. And the tax collector went home forgiven and justified. Why? Because the tax collector asked for the one thing and did the one thing that God required that the Pharisee could never bring himself to do. Ask for mercy. The Pharisee came before God with his hands full of all that he had done, presenting it before God. While the tax collector had given up on himself, he came with empty hands, declaring his great need before God. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Thou, Jesus, must save, and thou alone. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came into this world not to be served, but to give generously to his people. And all that he requires for us is to fill our desperate need of him and to ask for mercy. God fills empty hands. See, just a few chapters after this parable, the one who's telling this story is going to be sacrificed on a cross for sinners. And he will plead before his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who had done wrong would be crucified for sinners like us so that we could be reconciled and rescued back to the father. The perfect one was killed so that we, the imperfect, could be acceptable and could be made known by the Father and received by Him. So whether you've trusted in Christ this morning or not, our need is all the same. The undeserved grace and mercy of God extended through Christ. See, it's the grace of God that changes and empowers our hearts to see us for who we really are so that we then trust in the sufficiency of God through Christ. It was the grace of God that actually changed this sinful tax collector's heart so that he could cry out for mercy and receive the love of the Father. If you're here this morning and you profess faith in Christ, let me ask you, how do you think God sees you on your best day? Does he love you more? Does he delight in you more on those days? What about how he sees you at your worst when you've yelled at your kids or your roommate? When you betrayed a friend or a coworker, when you drank too much, when you lusted after another, or when you envied someone else's circumstances, does he love and care for you less in those moments? If that's how you think, then you're trusting in your own righteousness just like this Pharisee, because that is not the gospel message. See, self-righteous people can be deeply religious, but they don't live with true joy and power, and freedom, because there's always more to do, and more to hide, and pretend. How do you see yourself this morning? More like the Pharisee, or more like the tax collector? How do you see your sin, and how do you see the grace and mercy of Christ? See, Jesus desires for us to see our need of his mercy so that we'll then come into the light with empty hands in order to receive the full acceptance of Christ. 
And then only then will we experience the joy and the freedom of being known by him fully and completely. So what good might you be still clinging to this morning, thinking that it earns you favor before God? See, when our hands are full of the things that we've done, we won't receive grace because we don't see our need for it. Remember Isaiah's words, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags in the sight of God. And the truth is, that pharisaical tendency is in every one of us still. But the good news of the gospel says that when we confess our self-reliance and our pursuit of our own accomplishments, then he forgives us. And we are freed yet again to experience his grace. Have you outgrown God's grace this morning? Is the gospel a story that you responded to maybe last year or 10 years or 50 years ago, but yet you think you need more knowledge and more theology to keep you right with God and his grace? See, as we grow in God's grace, we become more and more aware of our need as we see our sin more clearly and the cross becomes more beautiful to us. None of us will ever outgrow the need of God's grace. We desperately need to hear the gospel on our ears and on our hearts every single day to not believe that we have anything in us that makes us right before God. He's finished it. He's completed it. This story Jesus is telling us is that God honors humility. And people who understand God's grace, they strive to turn away from comparing themselves with others and having disdain for others when they see their sin and their weakness. But we can't truly be merciful to others, can we? Until we've experienced God's mercy firsthand ourselves. Furthermore, only when we realize that we have a secure, righteous identity and love from God can we experience the kind of rest that our hearts are longing for. So might we be able to pray along with the prophet Micah who says, who is a God like you who pardons our sins and delights to show mercy. God fills empty hands. And so will you come to him this morning, maybe for the first time, with your hands open, or maybe for the 10,000th time, and to receive his love poured out on you and his delight in you as his child? Let's pray. Oh, Father, would that we truly believe that you paid it all in full at the cross. Lord, might we live in humility, seeing our daily need of your grace, so that our obedience might flow out of your great love for us that you have displayed on the cross and bringing us back to yourself and justifying us. And Father, might we tell of the goodness of our Savior to those around us, not seeing that we have anything to prove by our doing, but knowing that you've done it all. And Father, as we do this, we know that others will long to come forward and experience this grace just as we have. And so we pray that you would do this in our schools, in our workplace, in our homes, and in our community for the glory of your name. We pray all this in Christ's matchless name. Amen.